0: Help us as we study his word tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word, which you inspired by your spirit, by the hands of men who were not writing based on their own interpretation, but as your spirit guided them. And so we take your word tonight, and as always, very seriously. And we ask, oh God, that as we look at your word and look at these passages and these concepts that you would help us to think rightly help us to receive the word with eagerness and yet to test them to see if they are so and if they are so Lord we pray that you would encourage us and embolden us and increase our affection of you who are worthy in Christ's name we pray amen well our salvation was not plan B our salvation was always plan a in other words god didn't decide to save us within some point in human history it was always god's plan to save a people for himself amen Now we've covered the subjects before in previous uh, chapters as we were looking at different passages that show that god has actually decreed all things from the beginning and has been providentially working out his plan perfectly but follow that even if you struggle with this concept and perhaps are not embracing that quite yet if you believe that God knows all things then you have to affirm that he knew Adam and Eve were going to fall from eternity he knew that they were going to fall and and if he knew they were going to fall, then he knew what he was going to do to solve that problem of humanity falling before anything was ever even created. Cedric, did you have a question, brother? Chapter 7 or chapter 8 from the handout? Because we have one that says 7, we have one that says 8. That's weird. Chapter 7. Oh, uh, the chapter 8 is probably from the Sunday morning. Yeah. Good question. We're on chapter 7 of God's covenant, part 2. So, again, If God knows all things, and before he created anything, he knew that humanity was going to fall, and he therefore also knew what he was going to do in order to rescue humanity. And so we say again, our salvation was never plan B, it was always plan A. It was always something that God had intended to do from eternity, and we praise God for that. And so we're going to look at this subject tonight, and and the main point that we're going to draw from the passages that we're looking at is this. It's on your handout at the very top. We are saved by grace alone through the gospel, which was progressively revealed throughout history, culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. We're saved by grace alone through the gospel, which was progressively revealed throughout history, culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll break that down into four observations. The first is this the covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel which was first preached in the garden okay the covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel which was first preached in the garden read that quote with me under under number one this covenant is revealed in the gospel first of all to adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman okay so when the when the the Confession says the phrase, this covenant, it's referring to the covenant that it was just talking about in the previous paragraph, which was talking about the covenant of grace. So what, what we learned last week was that uh, because man had put himself under the curse of the law, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, un- under which we, we would be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? And so this covenant... Is revealed in the gospel it's revealed in the good news of Jesus Christ but it wasn't it wasn't only at the revelation of Jesus Christ that the gospel was in the world the gospel was first of all revealed according to the confession to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman it was promised first of all to Adam so let's take a look at this in Genesis 315 Genesis 315 what has just happened is is probably the second worst evil in human history the first one being the crucifixion of Jesus Christ i'm talking about rank not order chronologically but what has just happened is that in this perfect condition this this perfect garden where adam and eve were actually able to obey god they chose instead to eat the fruit that god had forbidden for them to eat and therefore after blaming each other, God started to curse the serpent. And so we read in Genesis 3, verse 15. Actually, let's read from verse 14. Genesis three fourteen, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God says to the serpent, because because they had because i'm sorry because the serpent had deceived Eve in particular to eat from the the, the fruit from the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil, which God had forbidden, and then Eve had in turn convinced her husband to eat of the fruit as well, because the serpent had done this cursed. They were above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. This, the serpent was now to crawl on its belly. Okay? But then in verse 15, we read this. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Some translations say, I'll put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. So the serpent's offspring would always have enmity with the woman's offspring. And then it says he shall bruise your head, man shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is often referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelion, or uh, the first gospel, which is what it's talking about. But I think that we actually need to do a little work to actually get there. We kind of read it with New Testament eyes and just say, well, that's clearly talking about Jesus, right? But we also have to read it in its original context as well. So it's not just like, we read this and it says, well, clearly he's saying that one of her descendants is going to, is going to bruise the serpent's head. We have, we have to unpack that a little bit more, okay? So first of all, this enmity between you and the woman, it is talking about serpents and humans as well. How do we know this? Because Satan is not cursed to just slither on the ground, right, Satan's a spiritual being, he's not slithering on the ground. What are What is slithering on the ground? Snakes. Snakes. So the curse is actually literally also to snakes. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how it also applies to Satan. But this is a curse on serpents as well. And there is an enmity between serpents and the woman. There is an enmity between snake babies and snake adults and humans, which is actually just observable in in nature, is it not? Like, yes, there are some people who have like pet snakes, and if that's you, okay, <laughs> don't invite me over and have them out, right? You can, you can keep them in their, in their little cages, but we acknowledge that people who just collect a bunch of snakes, that's not the norm. It's, an, it's the exception. The norm is people recoil at the sight of snakes, right? Whenever we go to Fry Ranch, we, we send some people up ahead of the group to go and either scare the snakes away or to kill the snakes if they're on the campground. Why? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second, right? So there is this natural um, issue between humans and snakes. And actually, it's not natural, because that's not how it was created to be. But it's as a result of the fall, that there is now an enmity between humans and snakes. And this applies not just to that particular serpent, but all serpents following him and and the human offspring as well. And then he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this enmity with, with snakes is not just something that uh, we don't like each other, but it actually turns into actual conflict, right? So like we said just a moment ago, when we go up and if we see rattlesnakes at Fry Ranch, which don't let that scare you, it's actually a pretty rare occurrence because of the fact that we go out to make sure that we scare them off. But if we see them, we usually kill them. Why do we do that? Seems mean. Why do we kill those snakes? So they don't kill us, right? Because what they're going to do if we get too close, if we bother them, they're going to bite us and we could die. We're pretty far from an ER when you're out in a fry ranch. And so th- we, there's this natural enmity where if you approach a venomous snake and you threaten it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite you, right? So this whole idea of he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel is talking about the ongoing enmity between snakes and humans but there is more to it than just the actual curse on physical serpents because the serpents were created good snakes were created good and so we recognize that it wasn't just a serpent that tempted eve it was satan right how do we know that that serpent was satan what in the bible tells us that Starts with an R and ends with Evelation. <laughs> Revelation calls Satan that ancient serpent. Right? So they would have understood that to be talking about the ancient serpent, the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. And again, it makes sense that it was not just some simple snake, because snakes were created good. There were snakes were not created evil. And so there was something demonic about the situation that was going on in the garden and revelation confirms it by saying by calling satan that ancient serpent and so what we're seeing in this verse is not just a physical enmity between snakes and people but now a spiritual enmity between the spiritual descendants of the devil and the spiritual descendants of essentially god right the the people of god versus the people of the world and we actually see this unpacked early on in genesis as well so you have, for example, uh, Cain. Cain kills Abel. And then Cain gets banished from the garden. And then what happens to Cain's son, uh, grandson, Lamech? What's his deal? You remember? He's like, yeah, Michael. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Cain, he killed Abel out of this jealousy that uh, his, his sacrifice was unaccepted by God, but Abel's was. And that's bad. But... Lamech kills somebody for just looking him wrong, looking at him wrong, and he brags about how uh, Cain's venge, vengeance is sevenfold, and mine is what does he say? I don't want to misquote him. Seventy-seven? A lot more. <laughs> my my vengeance is a is a lot more. If you find it, just shout it out. Yes, yeah, seventy-seven. Yeah, it says in... Where would you find that, sister? Genesis 4.24. 4, thank you. If Cain's revenge is 70-fold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So he's bragging about how vengeful he is, about how he killed a man just for wounding him, a young man for striking him, whereas Cain had different reasons for murdering his brother. And so from there, you have the, this line of, of wickedness, and then we have this different line that's represented in the line of Seth. And so we're seeing this division right early in Genesis of essentially the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. They're all humans, but these are people are following not God, but essentially the devil, the ways of the world. And you have Seth's line, and one of Seth's descendants is Noah, okay? Um, And then Brother Jose had had faithfully preached uh, what we think is, is right about Genesis 6, that the sons of God and the daughters of men are again talking about these two different lines, right? So what we're seeing in, in the garden in this curse on the serpent is not just, again, snakes versus humans, but Satan's spiritual descendants or the world and then the seed of the woman, the people of God. And in Genesis 6, they start to intermingle and they start to grow in wickedness in all the world. But this constant animosity, between the world and the people of God is evident, and that happens here in Genesis 3. But then, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, is again still speaking about this constant struggle, right? Well, how we often want to read it is that he shall bruise your head even though you had bruised his heel. That's not what it says. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, implying that this is an ongoing struggle. And that happens throughout all of human history. The people of God struggling with the people of the world, which is guided by Satan. So then how is this talking about Jesus Christ? It's because what's implied here is that ultimately man is going to prevail. Why do we say that? A couple reasons. First, um, this is a curse on the serpent. It's a curse on the serpent. It's not a blessing to the serpent that you're, hey, you're also going to get man back, right? The curse is on the serpent, and so the destruction of the serpent is implied. And then furthermore, having your head crushed is, is fatal as well, right? So, And then furthermore, we, we see how this is pictured in Christ in the fact that Satan is referred to as the serpent. And Christ defeats the serpent. But it is here in Genesis 3.15, if we're, if we're being totally candid, as something of a mystery. It's, it's something of a type that is not fully revealed. Like you don't read Genesis 3.15 if you know nothing else about the Bible and just conclude that's talking about Jesus Christ. If you know nothing else about the Bible. Like you just started reading, like Emmy, you just started in Genesis 1.1. When you got to Genesis 3.15, you were like, huh, that's a messianic prophecy, or, or did you? right yeah yeah so i mean that's yeah and you have to like look at commentaries to be like oh okay well that's messianic or if you read the whole bible then you start to see oh wow i see echoes of genesis three fifteen 15 in the destruction of the serpent in revelation right so also what we see here is that there is a, a, a mutual destruction that is going on in verse 15. it doesn't just say that he's going to bruise your head and then that's it It also says, you shall bruise his heel, right? Like, did Satan deliver a fatal blow to the Savior in his humanity? Yeah. Just because, the fact that Jesus is alive today does not diminish the reality that Satan did succeed in his mission in putting Jesus to death. Now, he couldn't keep Jesus, he couldn't keep Jesus dead, but he did, in fact... Influence people to lead to the Savior's death, but it was in the death of the Savior that he basically that Satan basically just signed his own death sentence, right? It was it was through death that he that he stopped the works of the devil and it was through his death that he saved sinners like you and me and rendered Jesus and sorry rendered Satan powerless over God's people, right? And then he rose from the dead three days later, showing that he was victorious over sin and death. And then in that last day, when he raises all of his people up, death is completely defeated. There is no more sting of death because everybody is alive again. But all of that is first pictured and revealed in this little verse, which is actually in a curse to Satan in Genesis 3.15. So the covenant of grace, is revealed in the Gospel which was first preached in the Garden and then secondly number two it was progressively revealed in the Old Testament until it was fully revealed in the new it was progressively revealed in the Old Testament until it was fully revealed in the new let's read that quote under number two the Covenant is revealed in the Gospel first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman And afterwards, by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. Afterwards, by farther steps. Uh, The gospel was first revealed in this mysterious typological way in Genesis 3.15. And then it continues to be revealed little by little. How did God reveal uh, his word? Was it like all at once? or was it like throughout human history? Yeah, it was throughout. It wasn't just like, all right, Moses, here's every book of the Old Testament. Publish it, print it, right? That wasn't how God was pleased to work. He was pleased to uh, give Moses a little revelation, or a lot of revelation, really. And then after that, uh, there was more that was written after that in the histories, and then there was Psalms that were being inspired uh, by the Lord, and then eventually you had the prophets that were coming later on in history, and God is revealing in further steps the gospel until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And by the way, uh, this is where we depart from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ. We view the covenant of grace differently from them. and, And this is why we don't baptize babies, right? If you missed the Reformation conference sessions about why we don't baptize babies, part one and part two, I highly recommend going back to our podcast or videos in YouTube and listening to that. But the idea is, if you'll just bear with me for just a moment, this may be completely something you're not interested in. But for Presbyterians, what they see as the covenant of grace is, it's, is, it's, it's essentially, when you, the, God makes a covenant with Abraham, that's the covenant of grace. Okay? So God makes a covenant of grace with Abraham. And then, when, when God makes the Mosaic Covenant, that too is an administration of the covenant of grace. All right. So they would consider both of those things the same covenant, but just different administrations. Same thing when uh, God makes a promise to David. That too is the same covenant of grace. So then when Jesus comes, he establishes the new covenant, but that too is the covenant of grace. Meaning that all of these covenants are really the same covenant, just different administrations of the same covenant, right? And, and the Baptists look at that in history, and they were like, well, we just, it doesn't seem to be the way that, that God is unfolding it in, in the scriptures, right? And so the way that, that we understand the covenants is that when God makes a covenant to Abraham, it's very specific what he's making the covenant for. Your descendants are going to be plenty, plentiful, and they're going to receive this land, right? And you need to get circumcised, and anyone who doesn't get circumcised is going to get cut off. Those are the, those are the terms of the covenant. He also promises them that, that your seed, one of your descendants, through, through him will all the families of the world be blessed. But ultimately, the covenant is about I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and you're going to live in this land, provided that you get circumcised, okay? Or your, your men get circumcised. The Mosaic Covenant, again, is essentially the same covenant as the Abrahamic Covenant, but now God is making it with a national people. Back in Abraham's time, it was just a nomadic group of people, but now there are millions of them, and they're, they're establishing themselves as a nation. And so it's, it's the same covenant, but now there's going to be specific laws in this covenant because you're a nation now. It applies differently to back when you were just a nomadic tribe. I'm also going to establish for you a sacrificial system so that if and when you sin you can atone for them in the sacrificial system so that you can remain in the land there is no promise of salvation in the mosaic covenant not eternal salvation there's no promise of eternal salvation in the abrahamic covenant except for the type the shadow that was pointing to jesus christ about the seed that would bless all the families of the world okay So all that to say is this, we don't see those covenants as being the covenant of grace. We see them as simply covenants that God had made with Abraham and with Moses, but within those covenants is revealed progressively the covenant of grace. It is the gospel being more and more fully unpacked until it is finally and fully unpacked in the New Testament. And and that's why we defer. And the reason why they, they baptize infants is because how they see it is, if this is all the same covenant and children have always been included in the covenant, then children should be included in the covenant still. But if how we're understanding it is correct, the new covenant is literally brand new. It's literally something different than the other covenants in the Old Testament. Then they don't, they don't follow the same rules. The people of God in the Old Testament were a physical, national people and the people of God as revealed in the gospel are those who have faith, okay? So uh, I hope that was not as confusing as it seemed like coming out of my mouth. But if you have questions on that, let's talk about that later. But the point that this is making is that further steps after Genesis 3.15, after the curse of the serpent, God continues to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ little by little. It's hidden in types and shadows, which is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, without regenerate hearts, can't see it. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. But we who do, we look back and we say, wow, we see the gospel all over the place. To see this concept, let's look at Hebrews 1.1. Hebrews 1.1. The author of Hebrews opens his sermon this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So long ago, remember, from the author of Hebrews' perspective, God hasn't revealed anything um, except for the New Testament, like before Christ, for 400 years. There is a 400-year intertestamental period between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and then the first book uh, that was written in the New Testament. 400 years of silence. No prophets, no prophecies, no scriptures, okay? And so that would be like us saying that the 1689 Confession was written long ago. That's 400 years ago. But then beyond that, I mean, the span of of the oldest Old Testament book that was written, which is probably around 1400 BC, 1440 BC, now we're talking like uh, over 1,000 years ago. And then the events that are represented in Genesis are like thousands of years before that and god was speaking to people even before the first book of the bible was written he was speaking to them audibly just like he spoke with adam and job etc okay so he's saying long ago and at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets many times we talked about this a moment ago god didn't reveal all of old testament prophecy or scripture at once he did it over time and then and in many ways, what are the various ways that you can think of that God spoke to the, our fathers by the prophets? Yeah, you, dreams and visions, good, what else? A donkey, A donkey. yeah, definitely. Good. Yeah, bush. yeah, the burning bush, good. Um, often just audibly, uh, he spoke to Moses in particular, uh, mouth to mouth it was it was it was exactly just you're speaking to him directly right so there's many ways uh, sometimes he would appear to people in theophany you thinking that pastor cory uh, in other words um like for example the angel that was wrestling with jacob and it was actually god that was wrestling with him not that god has a body but he manifested himself for that purpose to wrestle with jacob and then then name hmm The t- yeah. Yeah, yeah, the tent of meeting and, and the way that he had spoken to Moses and Aaron. yeah, so in different ways. In different times, God spoke to the people, uh, are there uh, our fathers or our forefathers by the prophets? Uh, and, and the idea here, again, is that because it was happening over time, and it was because it was happening in different ways, this is here where we get this idea of progressive revelation. People were given little bits of information or lots of bits of information over time and as the scriptures were being compiled, people were responsible to know and follow what God had revealed. But uh, what Adam and Eve knew in Genesis 3 is not what all of Israel knew by the time Malachi was written. It was progressively revealed. Uh, Now, why do we think that this also applies to the fact that the gospel was progressively revealed? Number one, verse 2 says but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world so in the past in the old testament god spoke to us uh, in various ways and many times through the prophets god spoke to the fathers that way but now in this revelation of the new covenant he is actually speaking to us in his son so what's implied here is that all of that revelation that was leading up to Jesus was culminating on Jesus Christ. He is the, the ultimate revelation of God. He is the final revelation of God. In fact, he's talking about those other ways and other times as something that's in the past, but now he's spoken to us by his son. And if that's not convincing to you, let me just demonstrate for you how it is that the gospel is revealed progressively throughout the Old Testament. This isn't original. I actually asked ChatGPT to do this for me. You always have to test what it does, but it actually does a pretty good job. I asked it to summarize in one sentence how the gospel is in each book of the Bible, okay? Test this, but it's good. Jen, I'm gonna actually rapid fire through this because there's 39 books of the Old Testament. Genesis foreshadows the Messiah through the promise of the seed of the woman. Exodus, the Passover lamb in Exodus, symbolizes Christ's atoning sacrifice. The sacrificial system in Leviticus points to the need for a perfect atonement in Christ. Balaam's prophecy in Numbers hints at the coming Messiah. Deuteronomy foretells a prophet like Moses fulfilled in Christ. Joshua in the book of Joshua symbolizes Christ leading believers to the ultimate promised rest. Various judges in the book of Judges foreshadow Jesus as the ultimate deliverer. Boaz as a kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth reflects Christ's role in redemption. David's anointing in 1 Samuel foreshadows the Messiah as the anointed king. The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel promises an everlasting kingdom through a descendant of David. Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings points to the greater wisdom of Christ. The fall of Israel and Judah in 2 Kings highlights the need for a true and eternal king. 1 Chronicles traces the genealogy leading to the Davidic Messiah. 2 Chronicles emphasizes repentance, pointing toward the need for a savior. The return from exile in Ezra foreshadows spiritual restoration through Christ. The rebuilding of Jerusalem in Nehemiah symbolizes the restoration and renewal in Christ. God's providence in preserving his people in the book of Esther points to his ultimate plan of salvation. Job expresses faith in a redeemer, pointing to hope in Christ. Many psalms contain messianic prophecies and expressions of trust in God's salvation. Personifies wisdom in the book of Proverbs, foreshadowing Jesus as the wisdom of God ecclesiastes points to the futility of life without god and the need for an eternal purpose in christ the song of solomon reflects the relationship between christ and the church isaiah's prophecies of the suffering servant unmistakably point to jesus jeremiah foretells the coming of a new covenant fulfilled in christ even in lament and lamentations there's hope in god's mercy ultimately fulfilled in christ The vision of dry bones in Ezekiel symbolizes spiritual renewal through Christ. Daniel's vision of the Son of Man points to Jesus as the divine ruler. Marriage symbolism in Hosea reflects God's redeeming love through Christ. Joel prophesies the Holy Spirit's coming and ultimate restoration through Christ. Amos predicts the restoration of the Davidic dynasty fulfilled in Jesus. The day of the Lord in the book of Obadiah points to judgment and salvation brought by Christ. Jesus refers to Jonah as a sign of his death and resurrection. Micah prophesies the Messiah's birthplace in Bethlehem. Nahum brings a message of comfort and peace ultimately fulfilled in the gospel. Habakkuk emphasizes the righteous living by faith, a concept central in Christ. Zephaniah speaks of a remnant and God's restoration pointing towards ultimate restoration in Christ. Haggai prophesies the desire of all nations pointing to the coming Messiah. Zechariah prophesies about the Messiah as the branch and Malachi foretells a messenger preparing the way for the Lord fulfilled in John the Baptist. Pretty cool, right? The gospel being progressively revealed throughout the ages until it was fully revealed in the new. Such is God's amazing wisdom and goodness toward us. It's incredible, it's incredible what he's done. He is the perfect storyteller. So it was progressively revealed in the Old Testament until it was fully revealed in the New. And thirdly, its foundation is the covenant of redemption. So the, the, the foundation of the covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption. Take a look at that quote. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. So this covenant of grace is founded on the eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son that they would redeem God's chosen people, right? So let's take a look at this concept in 2 Timothy 1. nine. 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul is encouraging Timothy to guard this deposit that's been entrusted to him. Tells him in verse 8, not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he elaborates in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So, this God who gives uh, power. Sharing in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God is the one who saved us. He saved us. He brought us out of our state of condemnation and death and sin, and he saved us into eternal life. He didn't just save us. He called us to a holy calling. He has called us to not just be forgiven, but to live holy lives as he is holy. He has called us to be his ambassadors. He has called us to to. to to live our lives in a manner worthy of this calling. And it's not because of our works, Paul says in verse 9. It's not because he looked at us and saw something good in us. It was simply because of his own purpose and grace. If you're a Christian, why did God save you? Because he wanted to and because he is gracious. That's what's being said here. It's because of his own purpose and grace. He gave us that grace, verse 9 says, in Christ Jesus, when? When? Before the ages began. So this grace was already given to us before God even said, let there be light. And there was light. Now how does that work? We talked about this earlier, how grace isn't really required until somebody sins, right? Forgiveness isn't required until somebody sins. And yet, our salvation was so certain from eternity that it could be said, we've had it since then. We've had it since the ages began, since before the ages began, which is complicated language as it is is because there was no time before creation. Right? It, that, that sentence doesn't even make sense to say before creation. But just to help us to wrap our minds around this, when God said, let there be light, our salvation was already secured. The grace was already given to us at that point. Okay, now let's take a look at Titus. It's one book to the east. Yes, sir. I think sometimes exactly, um, we talk about election. We don't talk about it right Yep. Like the, the, for me, that is election. But that is because we are so screwed up and so sinful that there are going to be so many times in our life where there's to doubt, right? And I think our salvation, I think that understanding of election was this was already done. I mm-hmm. Right. But there should be some comfort and some peace, right, to know that what he did outside of time has nothing to do with what I do inside of time in, in reference to my to my eternal salvation. Yeah. So, uh, just to summarize, if I understand you correctly, uh, if we rightly understand election, that God had done this from, had chosen outside of time, it should give us comfort. It should help us to realize that. That our keeping our salvation is not up to us. It's, it's based on God's choosing us from eternity past. We do take the warning seriously because there are people who think that they're saved when actually they're deceiving themselves. But if you are a Christian, you're a Christian because God had already called you from eternity. he had already given you that grace from eternity. Did I hit that right? Brother. Yeah. Praise the Lord for that. So Titus is one book to the east, to the right. Titus 1, 2... I'll just read from verse one, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So the faith of God's elect is in hope of eternal life. We have this assurance of the fact that we have eternal life. We will be given eternal life when we die and when Christ returns. We have this hope, it's an assurance of that. And this hope of eternal life, God who never lies, and by the way, how does the fact that God never lies encourage you? How does it give you assurance that God never lies? hmm Yeah, because he promised us. What if he did lie? What if he was a being that lied? His promises wouldn't matter. Yeah, his promises wouldn't matter. We wouldn't know if that was a real promise or not, right? I'm remembering this uh, car salesman from when I was younger, and uh, I was kind of bickering about the monthly payment, which would have been like $4 more or something like that. And he said, if you come every month, I'll give you $4 out of my own pocket, okay? That was his promise. But there's no way that I would have any assurance that he would have actually done that, right? Once they sell you the car, like, they're done with you, right? So, so if God was a being who lied, then, uh, then any of his promises that he would make, we'd have no assurance of it. But the fact that God doesn't lie, that he is unchangeable, and that he's all-powerful, gives us comfort that whatever he promises, he's actually going to fulfill. And this hope of eternal life, God who never lies, promised it, before the ages began now to whom did he promise it now we could think in one way he promised it to us even before we existed Um, but the only being that would have been aware of this promise is god and the persons of the trinity father son and holy spirit only only god and and the three persons that subsist in him would have been aware that this promise was ever made. So whether you want to call it a covenant of redemption or not, the point is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they knew what was going to happen. They knew about this salvation plan. They had agreed, the persons of the Trinity agreed. I was talking to Pastor Corey about this earlier. Whenever I talk about the Trinity, it's like walking a tightrope, not trying to fall into heresy, right? So bear with me as I try to, to wrestle through this. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the three persons in the one being who is God agreed that in our salvation, the son would submit himself to the father and he would be the one to be incarnated in the form of a servant. And he would be the one to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. And they agreed that the Holy Spirit would be the one to apply that salvation to sinners, giving them new life, eyes to see and ears to hear in order to receive that gospel by faith. That was agreed, not in history, but from eternity, before the ages began. So again, this covenant of grace, or the gospel, is founded on this agreement within the Godhead that they were going, that he was going to save a people for himself. All right? So that its foundation is the covenant of redemption. Number four, and lastly, it's only by the grace of this covenant that anyone has ever been saved. It's only by the grace of this covenant that anyone has ever been saved. Read that quote. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So this covenant of grace that has been revealed from Genesis 3.15 onward it's only by grace of believing in that, the progressive revelation of that gospel that any human being has ever been saved and given eternal life. Which answers the question for us, how did Old Testament believers get saved? Because no, no one was obeying the law perfectly. So how were they saved? That answers the question for us. They always were saved because they had faith in the gospel that was revealed throughout history. Would, again, they didn't know everything about the gospel, but they knew what was revealed at that time. And the reason why that was important was because man is now, the, the quote says, utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency, okay? There was no way that humans could have eternal life based on the, the arrangement that was made with Adam. Why is that? What was the requirement that was given to Adam in order to not die but implied have eternal life what was the requirement for the tree of the of right so the requirement was perfection but also in, in, the, in what theologians call positive law like the, the thing that God said don't do is don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil That's not even an arrangement that is accessible to us anymore. There is no tree somewhere that we can just choose not to eat of and therefore have eternal life. Uh, So that arrangement that was with Adam was with Adam and when Adam failed that covenant was broken. So we're under the curse of that covenant but ultimately there's no way that we could earn eternal life. And We talked about this last week too. Let's say that it's only talking about perfection. If we obeyed God's law perfectly would we deserve to go to heaven? No, because you just did what you were supposed to do, right? You just did your job. Why are you asking for a bonus, right? Like all you you get to do is not die by obeying God's law perfectly, right? It doesn't promise you eternal life to do that. So even if it were possible for one of us to obey God's law perfectly, we're still not under an arrangement that God should give us eternal life because of that, right? And so because of that, there is only one way that people in the Old Testament were saved. And it's only through faith in the gospel that was revealed to them. Faith in the Messiah that was progressively being revealed. We're going to look at that in four different places in our final moments here. Hebrews 11, verses 6 through 13. That's actually just right to the right of Titus. So if you're on Titus, just turn a page or two to Hebrews 11, 6, and 13. So Hebrews 11 is uh, what a lot of people call it the Hall of Faith. It, it's encouraging the Hebrews to have faith. Look what th- these people had faith and how they were rewarded for their faith. Okay? So in Hebrews 11, 6, it's ta- it says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? What's really great about this verse is that it's, it's particularly following, talking about Enoch, you remember Enoch what was unique about Enoch's life didn't die he was just all of a sudden was not and God took him into heaven now one might think why did God do that for him well if you look at that passage it says it's because he walked with God so just by itself it may seem like Enoch earned it right like he he walked faithfully with God so God took him into heaven but what Hebrews 11:6 is revealing to us is that it's faith. Why? Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. What is being said here, it's, it's by faith that Enoch was taken up. Not by his works. Not by walking with, walking with God in faithfulness. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Enoch couldn't have earned salvation All he did was believe in Yahweh, and that's why he walked with him. He believed in him. For whoever would draw near to God, verse 6 says, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch believed that God is who he says he is, that God is who he is, and that his character is consistent with what he's revealed, that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus says, if you seek me, you will find me. Jesus is God, and being God, he rewards those who seek him, right? Now, we can get into the whole Romans 3 says no one seeks for God, which is why the Spirit needs to be the one to regenerate us. But the point is that Enoch, if there's anyone that seems like they may have earned their way into heaven, it's not. It was by faith. Enoch was saved by faith, all right? So let's unpack this more. Romans 4, 1 through 2. Romans 4, 1 through 2. In Romans 4, this is part of this larger argument that Paul is making, that nobody is justified. In other words, no one is declared righteous by God by their works. Anyone who is declared righteous by God is by faith. That's the argument that he's making. And in Romans 4, verse 1, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. So, based on Abraham's works, what was gained by him? If he were justified by works, let's say that, he would, that the way that he would be declared righteous by God is by his works, then he would have something to boast about. And by the way, Abraham did do some things that were commendable. right? He wasn't always just about lying about his relationship with Sarah. There, there were some other things that he did that were very commendable. Right, he left the place that he was at, just believing in this God who's telling him, "Go here, and I'm going to bless you." And he said, "Yes, Lord," and and followed what God said. And in another situation, uh, God tells him to sacrifice his only son, and he's fixing to do that because he believes in God and believes that God could raise his son from the dead. Right, but it's not by any of that that Abraham is declared righteous. It's only by faith. In fact, it says in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So for us, we look at Abraham's life and we say, yeah, he, he's a good guy. He did some pretty good things. But what verse 2 says is he has nothing to boast about before God. Why would Abraham not be able to boast before God about his works? Yeah, Cedric. The says he the yeah, yeah. Ah, good. Yeah, so the point of the gospel, which Abraham believed, is that no man can boast, right? Uh, why couldn't Abraham boast despite doing some pretty faithful things? Yeah, Mr. Pope. Yeah, so the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And then in Romans 3, so he's unpacked, this whole Romans 1 through 3 is talking about Romans 1. Man, Gentiles are sinners, Romans 2, Jews are sinners. Romans 3, everyone's sinners, right? And so therefore, Abraham also is a sinner. And so let's say Abraham, his righteousness and his righteous deeds earned him some like justification, he's still a sinner. And because he's still a sinner, he's deserving of God's wrath just like everybody else. Abraham has no reason to boast. So Abraham too, though he is a, our forefather in the faith, he himself needed a savior too. So what about Acts 4.12? Let's take a look at that. Acts 4.12, just one book to the west. Acts (coughs) 4.12. Peter and John are, are, are now sharing the gospel to the Jewish leaders that had arrested them because they had just performed a miracle and preached the gospel to the crowd. And Peter and John say in verse 12, That there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. In other words, there is no other person who gives us the means of salvation by faith in him. And and this is a very unpopular idea today, right? You have people talking about coexist with those bumper stickers. They say that God, that the different religions are like an elephant where someone's touching the tail and they describe it this way. Someone's touching the trunk and they describe it a different way. This is saying that this is impossible. This is impossible. Because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name, uh, which name is essentially equated with a person. There's no one else under heaven given among men by which we must be saved jesus is the only way and and again you may think well that's not fair but god didn't have to send us any way it was gracious for him to give us one way and the one way to salvation that he provided us cost the blood of his only son so far be it from us to question god on why there is one way to heaven right it's amazing that he gives us one way but what's implied here is that even for the people in the Old Testament there is salvation in no one else not Abraham not Moses not David it is in Christ alone that they were saved which brings us also then to John 8:56 did the Old Testament believers believe in Jesus John 8:56 So at this point Jesus has just said something that was very controversial he has just said to the crowd to the jews that uh if anyone keeps my word this is in verse 52 he will never taste death this is controversial they say abraham is dead are you saying you're greater than abraham if you're saying that that anyone who does what what you say will never taste death then you're saying that you're greater than abraham and the short answer is yes yes, yes he is right and, and this 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 makes them want to kill him by the way but part of his answer is in verse 56 your father abraham remember again abraham to them is like top right your father abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad so just to Just to add even, I don't think that the Savior said this, just to anger them, but it definitely did anger them more. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was looking forward to me, is what Abraham is saying. Uh, And then he saw it and he was glad. And By the way, that word rejoice is not just like, I feel a little joy. It's like leaping with joy. That's the kind of joy that Abraham had in seeing the Messiah's day. Now, did Abraham... Uh, have every single detail understood about that even that he would be named Jesus Christ and that he'd be born in Bethlehem. I, I, I just don't think that that's necessary uh, possibly that it was revealed to him by prophecy that he just didn't record uh, but the point is he, re- he believed what was revealed to him about the Messiah and about the gospel up to that point in history. Now uh, he believed what the promise was to him that through his seed all the families of the world would be blessed and he probably also believed in the promise that was given to eve even though it's not recorded in written history they they pass things down by oral tradition right so it was likely that all the promises that were given up to that point abraham believed and he saw the messiah in what was revealed to him and he rejoiced thanks be to god oh i skipped hebrews 11:13. that's important so we did Hebrews 11:6, 6, but I forgot to cover verse 13. So bear with me. I'm sorry about that. But this is another key verse. So remember Hebrews 11:6: 6. That without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe those that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I'm just going to read verses 7 through 13. By faith Noah... And him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So verse 13, because we're running out of time. The point is that they got these promises from God. They didn't have the actual thing being received, but they looked at them from a distance and they, took, they, they greeted them as if they were receiving them then because they trusted God. But beyond that in this verse, what we see when it says that they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth means that for Noah, the more important thing was not being spared from the flood. And for Abraham, the more important thing was not having all of these descendants and for sarah the more important thing was not having a child they recognized that they didn't belong on this earth and so they believed god and knew that they belonged in heaven with him right so again the promises that they're believing are not simply physical temporary things they believed god they believed in eternal life with him okay and we're out of time so if you have questions Let's, uh, let's talk about it afterwards. Let me thank the Lord for all these things. Father, we are so grateful for this covenant of grace, this gospel that you've revealed to us. How merciful that you are that, that because we had put ourselves under the curse of sin, that you had revealed to us that you were going to save people. And through faith in that revelation, you have saved people from all time. And you have so kindly revealed to us That this was all jesus christ and we ask lord that you would help us to more firmly believe these things and if there's anyone here O lord who has not yet believed it please help them to see the truth of your gospel help them to turn to your son in faith and live help us also lord as we look at the scriptures to delight in your gospel all over the place help us to recognize that you had revealed the beauty of christ in the pages of scripture that, that that, the law and the prophets reveal him. And we ask, Lord, also that you would help us to encourage each other in these things. Be glorified in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.